into the book of Acts uh, once again. Uh, last week, uh, we studied the conversion of the Pharisee, Paul, who was called Saul. What we're going to be looking at this morning is what happened <laughs> as a result of that conversion. So we are going to be reading... Uh, this is chapter 9, uh, 19b through verse 31. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is it not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the, uh, to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among the, them at uh, Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord and he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenists but they were seeking to kill him and when the brothers learned this they brought him down uh, uh, to Caesarea uh, and sent him off to Tarsus so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied Well, Saul has already been introduced in this book of Acts, and we know that he's presented uh, earlier on as being the premier persecutor of the church. In other words, the person that all the other persecutors wanted to be more like. He was doing everything he could to possibly do to stamp the church out completely and absolutely from the very get-go. I do want to say this to you this morning. Sometimes in the book of Acts, he is called Saul early on. He's called Saul. He's called Paul later on. Matter of fact, in Acts 13.9, uh, it says that Saul, who was also called Paul. So for a time, he went by both names, Saul and Paul, but eventually became Paul as we know him to be. So don't let that confuse you. From this point in Acts, he's going to be referred to as Paul the rest of the book. So why the shift? Well, we don't know for certain, but I guess we could maybe speculate a little bit. And one of the things is this, is the person that we call, have been calling Saul up to this point, who's become Paul, is not entirely the same person anymore. In other words, there's a sense in which maybe God has given him a new name because he's not the same person that he was. He's a new person. 
spirit-filled man who has undergone a second birth. Birth by the Spirit in Christ. Just remember, Paul is in Damascus now, and he went there with a purpose, and the purpose was to persecute the church. It was taking roots and growing there. In other words, to repeat the same thing in Damascus that he had done in Jerusalem. But then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus, by his Spirit, changed him forever. So he went for Damascus to persecute the church, and what he winds up doing is building and strengthening the church that he was sent there to persecute. No longer the man that he was. His life is completely changed because Jesus came to him in his spirit and he changed him. Jesus sought out Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul did not seek out Jesus. And when he did, he brought him to his knees. He humbled this prideful and arrogant man and gave him humility. Paul knew that Jesus saved Paul. Paul knew that Paul did not save Paul. You see it all through his writings of the epistles. Jesus brought him to his knees, and then Jesus, by his spirit, raised him up unto eternal life. And Paul knew it. Paul understood that. Sadly, today, there are many, probably the majority of professing Christians who don't know that, who don't understand that. There are so many Christians today that believe that at least in some way, to some degree, they actually save themselves by choosing Jesus when other people don't. That thinking does not weigh in the balance of Scripture. I'm sorry, it just flat doesn't. What the Bible tells us is that God saves. God saves the sinner. Sinners don't save themselves. Paul knew that. He understood that. He knew that Jesus coming to him is what made the difference. He knew that Paul didn't save Paul, that Jesus saved He lived it. He taught it. He believed it. He practiced it. And let me just tell you this. We believe uh, in the gospel of grace primarily because Jesus actually taught it. 
It's all over the book of John, for instance. But we also believe it because next to Jesus, Paul is perhaps the greatest teacher of all as far as the early church goes. He wrote more of the books in the New Testament than any of the other apostles. It would be hard to, to imagine a Christian in today's world, ever since the days of Paul, that, that, that would n not have the idea that Jesus came first, but maybe Paul came right along behind him. Never think about this, how much influence the Apostle Paul has had on you as an individual Christian. But he stands as an example of the power of God by his spirit to change even the most broken and hardened heart. To humble the most proud of the proud. To bring them to their knees. But lift them up again by his grace. The Spirit transformed Paul does not waste any time at all. He's still in Damascus, and what does he do? He starts declaring the gospel of Christ in the synagogues in Damascus. Can you imagine the surprise and the shock of his audience? Not at all what they expected to hear from him. Not at all what they wanted to hear from him. They, in fact, are hearing exactly the opposite of what they expected to hear. Paul was a brilliant man. He increased all the more in strength. And he confounded the Jews. In other words, they tried to overcome all of his arguments. And they couldn't do it. They failed over and over and over again. His message left them speechless. They could not in any way argue from Scripture that Paul was incorrect in his conclusions. And these were the so-called experts in the Old Testament. Experts in the law. They could not refute what he was saying. And their resistance to his message is simply a measurement of the hardness of the fallen human heart. They were the ones who were supposedly speaking on God's behalf. And what we find them doing is resisting God. Resisting the Holy Spirit. Resisting the truth of God. 
So what do they do? They form a plot to kill him. They're going to try to shut Paul up just like they shut Jesus up. It's not the first or the last time, or it may be the first, but it's not going to be the last time that Paul would find himself under the threat of death because of his teaching. Something you're going to see happen repeatedly throughout his whole ministry. And eventually they will have his way. Eventually Paul will die in Rome. By the sword, beheaded by the sword. But only after many, 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 many years of active ministry that carried him all over the known world. How many disciples did Paul have by the time he was executed? In a sense, way more than Jesus probably did in this world before he died. See, Paul knew what the truth was. And once you really know what the truth is, you just can't simply deny it. It really is amazing that here you have this, this fellow that was so contrary to everything and now all of a sudden is taking like center stage in the church. In no time at all. I do want to note this, that not everyone, not everyone in Damascus was against Paul. There were those who heard the message and they believed it and received it. That message of salvation through Jesus Christ. But he, he begins to teach immediately. Now, some people would say, you know what, that doesn't sound like a very smart thing. You know, it, it seems to me like it would make more sense if Paul had gone off to some distant, lonely, lonesome place and was there with Jesus in the wilderness for, you know, several months or a year or two so that Jesus could really prepare him to do his job. Now, but that is not what we see with Paul. He jumps right into the middle of things immediately. Some people would say things like, was it, is it really, would it, was it really wise for the early church to allow Paul to take such a center stage early on? You could, you could understand that there probably were people, you know, we need to take some time to see and make sure this is really legitimate. That maybe he is feigning a conversion so he can get close to everybody and then turn us in and have us imprisoned or executed. But I would say to you this morning that God had been preparing Paul for exactly this from day one. The knowledge that, that God had imparted to Paul as a Pharisee as he studied and applied the scriptures. 
God was preparing him all along for this particular mission. Some of you know a little bit about my conversion. And you've heard me say this before, that one of my best friends that, that witnessed to me when I actually came to faith, he told me, he said, Keith, he said, I prayed for you, I talked with you, etc., 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 that I thought you were the last person on the face of the earth that would ever become a believer. I was shocked when I had only been a believer for about a year still learning the very basics when the leadership of the church came to me and asked me if I would start teaching. And my conversation with them was, don't you think we need to wait a little while, guys? <laughs> I really don't know a whole lot. You know, I'm learning a lot, and, uh, and maybe in the future. But see, part of it was I was a professional teacher, I was just going to be teaching something different than I always taught biology and chemistry and nuclear stuff and and all that. And I was going to be teaching something entirely different. So that was part of it, you know. Keith knows how to teach, obviously. But I felt so unready, so unprepared to do it. But I did it. Because the church was starving for teachers who were willing to do it. And the church is always in need of teachers. I'm so happy that Mike is carrying Mike and Barbara down the road that he is. And I am convicted that it's him doing it. Because the church needs a lot of things. But one of the things it needs is good, solid, gospel preaching and teaching teachers. And let me tell you, in the beginning, because I didn't know, I, I probably taught some very heretical things. <laughs> I was not ready. But the church needs teachers, people willing to do it, not something you, you enter into lightly. There were people who continued to be suspicious of Paul, and you can understand that. But finally, Paul will become one of the most trusted apostles of all. He will become perhaps the most effective of the apostles in his teaching and in his influence upon a great number of people. But you can say that there is certainly wisdom in, in saying, you know what, we need to slow down here a little bit. 
Now we know that. We know that there are people at times who profess faith in Jesus Christ who in some time later they fall away, right? We don't want to see that happen to a teacher. Time alone will prove whether it is genuine or not. Genuinely a call from God. Fortunately, Paul became one of the most trusted apostles. Of course, there were people in the early church who had a fear, and the fear was this, was he's just putting up an act so he can get in, in, into the church and get to find out who is who and who is not, and this, that, and the other, so he can then arrest us and prosecute us, imprison us, or maybe have us executed. You can understand that. I would have been concerned if, if you saw the church just as a whole just, just welcome him in with open arms without ever questioning anything. It's one of those things only time will tell. That hallelujah, time pro proved over and over again that in fact that Paul's conversion was genuine, it was real. That the man who wanted to snuff out Jesus was now on fire for Jesus. Man who will literally eventually give his very life for the gospel and for Christ. And God is something. He picked the person, like we said, that most people would have considered probably to be the least likely. The whole, whole thing is this, if he can change Paul, he can change anybody. <laughs> there may be people on your prayer list that you've been praying for salvation for for years and years and years, and I just want you to be encouraged this morning. If he can, if he can convert the apostle Paul, he can convert the person you're praying for. And it's nothing for him to do that. Just remember, he supported the execution, the murder of Deacon Stephen. He approved of it. But what, are the, what does the opposition do now? They try to kill Paul. As much as they were his fans before and were encouraging him to be spreading his message everywhere he could and this, that, and the other, now they want nothing more than to shut Paul up because he's not saying what they want him to say. As much as they love the unconverted Paul, they now abhor the Paul who has been converted to Christianity. The one they saw as a very great ally, now they see as their enemy. So they make a plot to kill Paul, just like they killed Jesus. 
but the Christians in the city let him out of the city through a hole in the wall and He went first to Caesarea and then to Tarsus. Now, you may not even know where Tarsus is. Caesarea was a city on the coast not too far from Jerusalem. Tarsus was Paul's hometown. It's in the southeast corner of Asia Minor, right where there's that curve kind of. It's right in that area. He was a native of that's why sometimes Paul is referred to as Saul or Paul of Tarsus and he will pass through there again uh, at least two times on his missionary journeys or he's going to carry the gospel eventually home his hometown It was an important city in the Roman world. Paul describes it uh, later on as no obscure city. In other words, it's well known by people. It's a city of importance, prominence, a respectable hometown. But now the church experiences some degree of peace. And it continues to grow and expand and be strengthened and built up. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and, and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Well, remember that Jesus had given the apostles that great commission, right, to go and make disciples of all the nations. And we haven't seen them really doing that up to this point, right? Jerusalem has been the central point. Now Damascus is another point. But it doesn't seem like the, the apostles are in much of a hurry to carry, uh, carry out that great commission. But the fact of the matter is they do. Paul has left Jerusalem now. But one by one, you're going to see the others leave. All but James, John's brother, who will soon be martyred in Jerusalem by Herod. Scripture really does give us a very detailed account of the missionary journeys of Paul. But he's the only one that Scripture gives us a detailed account of. We know more about the, uh, you know, the ministry of John, for instance. We know where he wound up and, you know, in Asia Minor and that sort of thing. We know something of Peter. But we know, really, Scripture doesn't speak at all to the ministries of some of the other apostles at all.
But what is going on here is this, is Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is preparing the church that started in Jerusalem now to make this outward thrust. To build a base to work from. And it will mean the disciples leaving Jerusalem. We do have some historical sources that help us understand what the missions and ministries of the other apostles happen to be. A very good source is Fox's Book of the Martyrs. Tells us somewhat about the ministry of all of these different guys. John, which is revealed to us through, through Scripture, like, like we said already, is he, he wound up in Asia Minor. So he's a good way from Jerusalem at that point. And he was an old man when he was, when he was there. They say that when he came to church on Sunday that, uh, that he was feeble and, and he just had this message over and over again. Love one another. Is that a message you think that probably most of us need to listen to or hear very now? Maybe every week would be good. Maybe every day would be good. Maybe every minute would be good. But John had ministry in Asia Minor. Are there seven churches in Asia Minor? Matthew, we're told, went to Persia into Egypt and guess what? Also to Ethiopia. We've already studied the Ethiopian eunuch just a few weeks ago. Philip went to Scythia, which in modern day in the modern day would be eastern Russia, which is a good way from the promised land, right? He also, so he went north, northeast. He also went far, uh, west as far as present-day France. And also spent time in Asia Minor. Bartholomew ministered in Asia Minor. Armenia even India. Thomas, Babylon, Babylon, Persia, and India as well. James, the son of Alphaeus, went to Syria. Jude, Armenia, Edessa, Syria, Persia. He was martyred in what would be called today modern Iran. Simon the Zealot, Carthage, which is North Africa, Spain, and even as far as Britain. Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot, to Armenia, and guess what? To the Ukraine. 
So how old is the church in Ukraine that is fighting for its life right now? Andrew, Peter's brother, ministered to the Scythians, the Ethiopians. He was crucified in Patra, Greece. After saying these words, O cross, most welcome and longed for, with a willing mind, joyfully and desirously, I come to you, being the scholar of him who did hang on you. I have always been your lover and yearn to embrace you. Can you imagine? Peter would carry the gospel as far as Rome where he will be martyred by the sword around the time that Paul would be. Actually, Paul or Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was martyred by the sword, beheaded basically. Now we understand that this world is a lot bigger than they knew it to be. Right? So there's no way we can say that the, the, those guys actually fulfilled the Great Commission to take the gospel to the whole world, that they did their doggone best to do it as far as they could. And they left the rest of it for guess who? Everybody that would come after them. <laughs> Every generation has come and gone of the church since Jesus ascended into heaven has done uh, its part in fulfilling the Great Commission. And we sit here today and the Great Commission still has not yet been fulfilled. There are still people groups in the world who have not yet heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's hard for us to conceive of. Now, obviously, we can't all go, that we all can support the effort, right? You may not realize it, but a portion of the money that we donate to General Assembly and to Presbytery goes to foreign missions, as well as domestic missions. So you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, I don't really give any money to the missionary work or whatever you do. You don't necessarily do it directly. Maybe you do, and I would encourage you to do, do your own on top of all of that. It costs money to send missionaries. But what are we all working toward? We're, we're working toward the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The commandment of Christ. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't a proposal. It wasn't to, like you might want to think about doing this. Is This is what I'm telling you to do. To carry the gospel everywhere. Let me tell you, until Jesus comes back, 
there will always be more to do. More to do. The question is, are we going to be faithful in doing it? You know, we live in this world that is just, just all messed up. And one of the things that really boils my oil is this. It's a world that encourages people to believe over and over and over again that it's all about me. Whatever makes me feel good. Whatever I want. It's very easy as, as Christians to be influenced by this world around us. And not only that, by this sin that stays with, is still within us. But just like Jesus said, I must be about my father's business, the church must be about our father's business. We know there's more to be done simply because Jesus has not come back yet. That's when it'll be finished. Until that time comes, there is work to do. And I hope you have your own little mission field. It starts in your neighborhood. The people that live around you, the people that you know probably better than a lot of other people. And if you don't know any of your neighbors, what I would ask you is, why don't you? You know, we live in this world where, where isolationism is almost encouraged amongst people. You don't want to interact with people. You don't want to have, to have anything to do with people. But that is not us. Us is being engaged in the lives of people, other people. There are going to be people standing in the life chain this afternoon. A mission opportunity for every believer. Not hard to do. You don't have to say a word. Just show up and stand. I've heard people say things like that. Well, why well, wouldn't do that? You know, I wouldn't expose my wife to that because somebody might throw a brick at her and hurt her. Let me tell you, I've never, I've done this. The Lord, I've been doing. We have never ever missed a life chain since we became believers, and we have never witnessed anything that comes close to anything like that. Now, people will go by and they, maybe they yell at you or. Whatever, but you know what the most encouraging thing about it is? Is there are a lot of people that go by blowing their horn and waving their hand and saying, with their thumbs up. It's a way to encourage other believers. So what are you doing this afternoon?
By the way, the Gators are playing football this afternoon, which burns me because I don't like this whole idea of football. So. But what's more important? Babies? Women? Or football games?